Hi, I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health, fitness, and well-being space to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. So, Alberto, Dr. Producer, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, no, I'm really, really looking forward to the next however long we've got. Looking forward to not having to stick to 30 minutes either, so listeners will know it's going to be a longer form interview, which is exciting. Let's start with how you became a consultant psychiatrist. You know, was it that you wanted to better understand your own behaviour? Was it you know, a deep interest in the human mind? Or what was it? Okay, well, when I was in high school, I was already reading lots of books about nutrition and health. I studied massage therapy and I had an interest in, at the time we called them an alternative and complementary medicine. So when I studied biology in high school, I found it quite fascinating. So it was obvious to me that I wanted to study medicine to understand the human body better. At the time, I didn't have an interest in psychiatry yet. Then when I was studying medicine, I worked as a massage therapist and I learned a few other disciplines that you could consider alternative. I studied a bit of acupuncture, a little bit of nutritional therapy, and uh, gradually became more fascinated with the mind and with the brain. And I thought that after studying medicine, psychiatry would be the most interesting and engaging discipline that I could study. Mm. I thought about becoming a rheumatologist because of my interest in massage and biomechanics. And I was close to becoming a GP also because it was a very integrative type of work. But I thought psychiatry and neuroscience were actually much more interesting than anything else. And I thought, I'll never get bored. I know that sounds strange, but that was the main ethos that I, kind of the main reason that made me take this route as a consultant psychiatrist. So I graduated, well, I mean, I completed my training in Barcelona, then came to London, completed a PhD at King's College, and I've been in quite a lot of different jobs, but more recently I've become more and more interested in addiction and in ADHD and the relationship between them. Mm. Which we're going to talk a lot more about, but why addiction and ADHD? Interestingly, I became interested in both of them separately because of demand, because there's a lot of clinical demand, a lot of patients who present with either or. And actually, as I started seeing more patients with both conditions, I realized that there's an incredible link between them. Mm. So it was actually a match of demand. It wasn't that I originally thought I wanted to become an expert on this. It gradually happened in a kind of organic way as I started to see more and more people struggling. For example, people struggling with addiction that I found had ADHD and it was a bit of a missing link. When you diagnose it and occasionally treat it, sometimes the addiction can improve dramatically. Or in the case of ADHD itself, I would see patients with a history of anxiety or long mood or other problems or even trauma who were undiagnosed and they had ADHD. ADHD was also a missing link that helped us understand their formulation better and help them overcome their anxiety or their addiction or life problems. We're going to talk a lot more about ADHD and alcohol and that relationship, but just as a point of interest, is it a relatively recent discovery, the correlation between the two? I would say that the science is relatively recent, but we have known for a long time that addictions are very much related to a dysregulation in the reward system of the brain. And one of the main substances is the dopamine, which is the main reward neurotransmitter or chemical substance of the brain. And we have also known for a long time that ADHD is very linked to a dysregulation in the noradrenaline system of the brain as well as the dopamine system. So the theoretical basis for that has been known for a long time. 
But I think it's only been in recent years that we've had proper scientific studies kind of investigating the relationship between them and even the fact that, for example, sometimes when you treat the ADHD, the outcomes can improve in terms of people with a history of addiction having less relapse rates and that sort of more outcome-driven type of studies. Mm. Okay. Well, let's, let's come back to that. But one of the reasons I was really interested in talking to you is my own history with addiction is 20 years of drinking alcohol, you know, chronically, I would say, for the latter 10, perhaps, with some other substances as well, and six and a bit years sobriety now. Addiction is something I'm really interested in, trying to get to the bottom of what causes it, what drives it, is it a brain disease, and some of the, the, the stuff that we'll get to talk about. Was there any of that in your family that, that sort of led you to be more interested in it? Interestingly, I don't have a particular family history of addiction. I have had a few friends who have struggled with it, so that has been my connection with it. Mm. But perhaps I am lucky in that I don't have a significant history of alcoholism. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but actually about 50% of the vulnerability to alcoholism seems to come from genetic factors. And uh, we 50%. have about 50%. It's about 40 to 60, so around 50%. Yeah. Of course, you know, these statistics, you have to take them with a pinch of salt, but we're talking very, very high numbers and we have identified some genes which tend to run in families. And these genes, what they do is they regulate the way you respond to alcohol as a stimulus. So if you take a sample of, of people and you give them alcohol, let's say alcohol naive people, and you give them alcohol, some of them will react in a very positive way. They will feel elated, they will feel very calm, all their worries will appear to dissipate and they will really feel in that kind of merry state. They'll really feel in such an amazing way that they'll naturally want to take it more often, particularly if they're in distress. There's some other people who will not tolerate it physically or will just feel sedated or just simply will feel in an uncomfortable way. And these people are very unlikely to develop an addiction. Yeah. I think I'm one of them, for example, when it comes to alcohol. I got drunk once and it was, you know, something that I was almost forced to, you know, kind of trying to see what happens when you get drunk and it was many years ago and it wasn't a pleasant experience. So, yeah, it's um, not. And I can have an addictive personality when it comes to other things like, for example, sweets, sugar and things like that. So I don't think people are addictive or not addictive. I think it very much depends on the substance and how you're hardwired to respond yeah. to it. So in terms of your experience, would you say that you were alcohol dependent at some point? Undoubtedly. I mean, my drinking culminated in March 2012, where I was drinking anything between a bottle and a half and three bottles of wine, red wine a day, starting potentially in the morning, but certainly at lunchtime, 12 onwards, a couple of glasses at lunch, back to the office and then back in the evening. And that, that quantity could ever play, but my standard would be about a bottle and a half. That was my normal, in the same way that someone else might have two coffees in the morning or three meals a day, I would have perhaps those two things, but also up to a bottle and a half, perhaps more. The dependency is an interesting one. So the physical dependency, without a doubt, I would shake on withdrawals, anxiety due to withdrawal, particularly in the last few years. I don't know at what point that dependency started, but I started drinking young, so at around 14. And I think the psychological dependency starts from there. And I heard a really interesting quote from Simon Sinek, which was talking about if a person starts to use, I don't know what you think of this, but when a person starts to use alcohol at a young age, instead of relying on other people to sort through their feelings, they're using a bottle or a cigarette or a drug. 
and that encourages the feeling of don't share you can sort this yourself you can seek comfort in the drinks cabinet if you like don't you need to go to friends and then you grow up with that same pattern of behavior and that's definitely true of me i'm far more likely to look for the solutions myself no longer in alcohol but myself than i am to reach out even though i have a great support network of friends and family so i think there was something in that dependency then depending on yourself to sort your problems out a more insular type of, of personality trait absolutely you've made a very good point and there's two concepts of dependence I and mean, one is physical dependence which happens with some substances like alcohol or benzodiazepines or opiates when you try the substance a few times if your body becomes dependent on it you couldn't stop cold turkey because you would have withdrawals mm. and you've raised the issue of psychological reliance or dependence so I understand you were using alcohol at a young age as a coping mechanism yes like a lot of people do and smoking can be a coping mechanism it's a fitting in mechanism a coping mechanism yes. yeah just a way to deal with stress anxiety or with the hardships of, of life so if alcohol is something that asks no questions always works and it just takes the edge of the anxiety it helps you sleep at night it even makes you occasionally elated merry it is going to become the go-to resource instead of perhaps talking to friends or mm. developing other kind of resilience or other coping mechanisms that could be more adaptive, more healthy for you. So particularly at a young age when people are developing these coping mechanisms, if they have access to substances, if they become their coping mechanisms, they're at much higher risk of addictions, mm. definitely. Mm. Yeah, so I'd, I'd say that was definitely the case. So when the dependency started and what type of dependency is really hard to say. But yeah, I, to answer your question, yes, undoubtedly alcohol dependent. It takes generally a long time for someone to become alcohol dependent. They need to consume daily and generally high amounts and it depends on your metabolism, the state of your liver and some of the factors could be genetic or personal, but generally it takes months drinking a significant amount of alcohol on a daily basis. And they don't tend to realize that they're dependent until one day kind of in the morning or early afternoon, they realize that if they don't have a drink, they start shaking. Mm. And they feel really awful. So they need to start having the first drink of the day rather than in the evening, which tends to be the case, more in the morning or in the afternoon. If that happens to anyone, they should become quite concerned because that means they're becoming alcohol dependent. Mm. They shouldn't stop drinking cold turkey because they could have delirium tremens or they could struggle physically or, or even have severe consequences like epileptic fits. Yeah. If that's the case, they should ideally go and to have a detox like with Valium or Librium. Yeah. I understand that's what you... Yeah, Librium is what I swallow. I, I had two outpatient detoxes, which for the benefit of listeners, is basically where you go to the doctor and you explain the issue and they'll give you something like Librium, which is a strong form of Valium, I understand, which just neutralizes, I would describe it as it neutralizes any feelings of anxiety or withdrawal so that you essentially feel it's normal and you can focus on the task at hand, which is not to drink or take drugs or whatever it might be. And then I also, I spent a time in rehab and I got my third and final course of Librium for two weeks there. So yeah, that's the route I went down with it and that was successful. I want to talk about the different types of you know, alcohol addiction versus dependency. But I think before that, let's talk about, you asked at what point I, I felt or whether I felt dependent. Yes. What is the phase, the stages that we go through of dependency? What are some of the signs that people would look out for in their behavior or in others okay. that you're becoming dependent? And you're talking about physical... And when does dependency become addiction? 
Okay, it's because the word physical dependent, or psychological. Sorry, both both of them, right? Yeah. Okay. When I use the word dependence, I always refer to physical dependence because in in medicine we say that someone is dependent on a substance when they couldn't stop taking it cold turkey without feeling okay. So, for example, there's no such thing as someone being dependent on pornography or gambling or anything. It would be more psychological dependence or, or reliance. So. Just kind of to clarify, kind of the medical sense of the term. Mm. In terms of psychological reliance, which is, I think, what you meant sometimes with psychological dependence. Yes. yes. I think it happens so gradually that people don't realize. Generally, it happens very slowly, and it needs a few ingredients. First of all, it needs you to be hardwired in a way that when you take the substance or when you do a certain behavior, you get a significant reward that tends to be much higher than with anything else. That creates the initial kind of carrot kind of the initial imprint in the brain that makes you crave and want the substance more often. Or, for example, if the substance takes the anxiety away or if, if you feel particularly good with it. So it's not just the reward. Sometimes the reward can be stopping your suffering occasionally. So that's the first stage. At some point, the person starts consuming the substance so often that they become so reliant on it that they cannot function without it. Or they're having negative consequences, but they're not realizing it. Or if they're realizing it, they think that it's not that much of a big deal, and other people are much worse than me, and I'm not an addict. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of courage and insight for someone to think I have an addiction. It's a very dreadful thing to think I'm an addict. But actually, once someone starts thinking that way, then they can do something about it, and that's the AA kind of twelve-step mentality, which I think for a lot of people is extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. There's lots of stages in between, isn't there? And I find it interesting when you mention, I know people, and I'm sure people listening will know people as well, that are possibly consuming 100 plus units of alcohol a week. Their problem drinking is not necessarily related to units or how much they're drinking, but where it's landing them up. So they're constantly losing their mobile phone, can't remember getting home, falling out with friends and family or strangers on the street. All this is an example of problem drinking. And I encourage people to think about where their addictive behavior or their their problem behavior is landing them up rather than how much they're drinking or when I don't drink spirits or I never drink it you know in the morning and there's a really interesting program with Adrian Charles recently did you see that it was called my drinking and me or something like that well find it and post a link in the show notes if it's still on iPlayer drinkers like me that's what it was called. Okay. And Adrian Charles admitted to consuming 120 units a week or something like that, but he never imagined he had a problem with alcohol. And he did this program all about how he tried to go cold turkey, but he also interviewed other people around alcohol. And he said it was really interesting. He just didn't realize how much of an issue it had become for him mm-hmm. because it's insidious. It creeps up. And he surrounded himself with similar types of people. But keeping an actual record of this really highlighted him how much he was drinking and what kind of relationship he had with alcohol and how he used it. So some of the people I know, we talked about it afterwards and it opened a lot of eyes, I think, because he also interviewed Professor Nutt, David Nutt, who talked about addictive behaviours and he said, we're trying to get away, or he was trying to get away from the word addiction and more towards dependency or alcohol use. Because I think there's this big disconnect where people will perhaps listen to this and what I've just said about Libria and rehab and think, God, I was never there. You know, I've never drunk that much. And think that their own situation is not necessarily an issue. And actually it is. If you're missing work, missing social events, sleeping in, you know, 
doing damage to your health. That's a problem. It doesn't matter if it's taking you half a pint or 10 pints to get to that stage. So there's quite a lot in all of that, but I think just understanding what all the, what the stages are is really important. And your own personal relationship with whatever it is and where it's, it's getting you is, is one of the key things. I mean, absolutely. I mean, spot on. So the definition of addiction, which is the problem at hand, is that you compulsively engage in the same behavior in spite of the negative consequences. Interestingly, the definition of addiction doesn't include the term dependence or mm. dependence is something that can happen in some addictions, like we said, like Valium, benzodiazepines, alcohol, opioids, but it doesn't happen for the majority of addictions. So you can be addicted but not dependent? Exactly. The majority right. of addictions don't have an element of physiological or medical dependence at all. Colloquially, you could say that someone is dependent on gambling because they need to gamble mm. just to feel okay or dependent on you know, sugar. But chemically or medically, we only use that term when someone is physically dependent. And that happens just with a very few substances. For example, cocaine. Mm. You could use very large amounts of cocaine on a daily basis for years and stop cold turkey. Yeah. You will have what people call a crash. You'll feel very unwell, but you will not die. You will not have delirium tremens or you will not start shaking and feel unwell. Whereas with Valium or with Sanax or alcohol or let's say opioids like heroin, if you stop taking these substances within a day, generally maximum until you start feeling very unwell and sometimes you mm. could even die, have an epileptic fit, that's mm -hmm. dependent. So we're focusing on addiction because that's the big problem. Sometimes if dependence is an issue, then you need medical treatment for that, but that tends to last only one to two weeks, like in your case, mm. delivery. But the addiction is the big elephant in the room because it, it's very widespread and as you said, it's very sneaky, it's very insidious, it creeps in very slowly and it could be addiction to many different things, not just like the big hard kind of substances or drugs. Mm. It can be behavioral addictions, process addictions. In the kind of world we live in, there are so many stimuli from our mobile phones to all this kind of very sugary food that has been almost kind of designed to make us feel addicted to it with the right combination of fat and sugar. And actually mm. I understand there are some of the food companies even do studies to see which of the combination of ingredients seem to make people more prone really? to, to take, apparently, yes. So to, what is to, the most potent formula of fat and sugar to result in, in craving? Re repeated so use, So the food yes. becomes more Repeated much. use. That yeah. is what, because then the product will be bought more often. Yeah. But this is similar to any type of marketing. But of course, marketing used for that purpose seems almost ethically inappropriate. But as long as the ingredients are legal, that's why Coke had to be removed from the original formula of Coca-Cola. Mm. But anyway, going back to the topic, addiction is the big elephant in the room. You have some type of addiction if you are engaging in a behavior repeatedly, compulsively, there are negative consequences as a result of that. Yeah. So in the example you mentioned, it could be that someone consumes an incredible amount of units of alcohol for a while and that they seem to have no consequences. You could argue that this person doesn't have an addiction, but it depends how you define consequences because with 120 units a week, it's only a matter of when, not if, that person will have liver damage. So... Will have liver damage. Will have liver damage. Yeah. Because 120 units a week, I can guarantee you that it may take years, it may take a couple of decades if you're very young and healthy, but sooner or later you'll start developing liver damage. The extent of which will depend on many factors, but eventually it will be quite severe. Mm. So the consequences may be delayed, but you can start noticing them when they happen. If they start happening, or if you're sure they're going to happen, 
there are already consequences that you could use just to define that the person is in addiction. Mm. But I'm sure there are other consequences that the person probably doesn't notice. So when they are drinking, are they sleeping as good as if they weren't drinking? Because mm. drinking affects your sleep in mm. a way that most people don't realize. How does it affect it? We know that it really shortens the duration of sleep. It can kind of very much cause an imbalance in the type of REM and deep sleep and actually sleep becomes less restorative. So when people drink regularly, even if it's just a couple of glasses of wine a night, it tends to be above a certain amount of alcohol for most people, perhaps not with a small amount, although it depends on individuals. I mean, they will always tell me when my patients do it like stopped over and things like that, they say, mm. it's incredible how much better I sleep. It's incredible how I just kind of feel. So then negative consequences may not be obvious mm. for you. So sometimes that's why it's good to talk to someone else and think, do you think I have a problem with this? Other people will generally be able to tell you consequences more than you'd be able to, yeah. to see for yourself. Yeah. I think one of the really easy ways of finding out, there is a big caveat to this, whether or not you have an issue, whether it's psychological or physical, is to try and stop. Caveat being, obviously, if you're consuming a considerable amount or you have for a prolonged period, irrespective of the amount, certainly alcohol would be, it wouldn't be advisable, would it, to stop? So... If somebody's drinking quite a bit every day, that would not be a good strategy. But if maybe you drink, I don't know, what would the, what would the fine line be of course. with I mean, alcohol? In, in terms of what amount? Safe to stop is, without, oh, yeah, safe without to any stop. Sort of consequence. Okay, so I think if someone is drinking a significant amount, it probably is best to kind of consult a professional yeah. just in case. But if, if you're drinking alcohol and you want to stop, you don't drink in the morning and then you realize that you know, at some point during the day you start feeling physically unwell, yeah. that is a sign that you're dependent. Generally, yeah. if you drink, let's say, more than 10 units a day, but it could be less for some people, if you find that you drink this amount for a while, chances are you could be dependent. So perhaps don't do the experiment of not drinking. Yeah. Try to either go to the GP or reduce the amount. But generally, you know that you're dependent when you realize that about 12 to 20 hours without the substance, generally alcohol. Mm. You start feeling shaky, clammy, quite anxious, mm. nauseous. Then you know you are to an extent dependent. If that's the case, you do need to drink something to mm. avoid something like a fit or a worse consequence. But ideally, you want to either go to a rehab or get some sort of outpatient detox or at yeah. least get, get looked. Yeah. I had no idea that an alcohol induced seizure or fit even existed until 10 years ago when it happened to someone very close to me. I had no idea. In fact, it was a major wake-up call for me because I was at four years off giving up alcohol. So I would say coming close to the peak of my addictive behaviour with alcohol. And this happened to this, this person who was close to me. So I went home and Googled alcohol induced seizure and thought, okay, it's not that uncommon. And of course, there were loads of Google hits with, you know, worried about your alcohol consumption, take a quiz. So I took a quiz, I think it's 20 questions and I scored super high. And that was a real kind of, it's actually crazy to talk, to talk about this and think what well, you didn't know then that what you were doing was excessive and problematic. And I guess I did, but I didn't know that it could have all these repercussions. It's so naive, but I just didn't. I didn't think it was going to be good for me, but I didn't know you could fit. I didn't know there was um, you know, a kindling effect, all of which I'm sure we'll talk about, that it's actually dangerous to stop abruptly. I didn't know any of this. Anyway, that was my first, shortly after that I gave up for the first time, which lasted eight months. For the second time I gave up, it lasted three months, and then when I was 37, so 16 a bit years ago, I gave up and that was, yeah, the, I'm going to say it's the final time because it will be, that's within my control. 
But there was so much about it I didn't know, including alcohol-induced seizures. I mean, but I mean, I mentioned the kindling effect. Can you explain what that is? In terms of the alcohol-induced yeah. seizures, yeah. yeah. So the kindling effect is a physiological mechanism whereby someone is more prone to having seizures when they stop alcohol a number of times. So if you have had different alcohol withdrawals and you haven't had a substance like Valium to kind of cushion you through them, you become more likely to have a, a seizure. Right. So sometimes the problem is the seizures can happen even in the absence of symptoms. So the normal thing is that people experience shake, they're shaking, they feel nauseous, they feel unwell, trembling, and they know something wrong could happen. Mm. But sometimes there are many cases reported of people having seizures on the second day of withdrawal with no previous symptoms, just out of the blue and just due to withdrawal. Some of them can be due to kindling. So the mm. more you drink and the more withdrawals you do, the more you predispose your brain to that kind of effect and that some of that is the kindling mm. effect which can happen in epilepsy or in, in other, sometimes we say that it can happen also in other mental health conditions. Yeah. So, and you raised earlier the issue of denial. Denial is often linked to lack of knowledge about the consequences. So, when people use substances, very rarely they'll know everything about them unless you're a doctor and you work on that, which is why generally therapy or counseling done by either a coach or even going to a YA or talking to a doctor or a therapist helps a lot with something called psychoeducation. If you know about the physical, mental consequences of the substance, then you're much more insightful as to realizing what the consequences are, short-term, currently, or even long-term. Because like you said, I mean, if you had known all of that many years back, you could have potentially acted differently. Mm. You may not have acted differently, but at least you would have had the opportunity to take action earlier, potentially. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, who knows? But it was certainly an eye-opener. Yeah. Okay. Now, coming back to addiction, you mentioned process addictions, substance addictions. Let's talk a bit more about the broad different no types of addictions that we can have because someone might be listening thinking well I don't drink a lot in fact I was at a, Dr. Gabor Mate we were talking about him before we hit record yes. I was at a talk that he gave three or four weeks ago and he asked the question of the audience who here had a happy childhood but has an addiction and there were handful, like one or two people put their hands up but most people didn't and at the end he said I'm just inviting someone who believes they had a happy childhood but yet has an addiction if they would like to just riff with me here in the, you know, here live into the talk, then put your hand up. So a woman at the front did. And very quickly he discovered that actually there were things in her childhood okay. that weren't happy, you know. Specifically uh, that her uh, parents were so in love and that was great because it meant she had such a happy childhood to see her parents so happy. And a few two or three questions later she admitted that she sometimes felt shut out from that bubble that they had together yes. of love and happiness. So quickly we've identified something that might then have led. She didn't say what her addiction was, he didn't ask, but you know, he's got some some really interesting theories around the types of addictions and he very openly talks about his, which is an addiction to compact discs, the yes. purchasing of compact discs, specifically for classical music. And when he said this, I knew it already because it's one of his books, when he said this in the talk, there was a sort of titter amongst the audience of, you know, compact discs, is that really an addiction? And he said, well, I hear you laugh if I was to say to you that I actually left he's a doctor a medical doctor as well and he was when he was training qualified you know he often delivered babies in the maternity suite I think it's called the birthing suite and he was actually in the process of assisting a woman with her birth when he was just compelled to leave and go out and purchase compact discs 
which is it is the sort of you know we'll do all sorts of things to satisfy our addictions yeah. like cancelling meetings so you can be in the pub instead and that was his equivalent he, and then he also said and would you still laugh if i told you that i spent eight thousand canadian dollars on cds in one shopping spree so it is it's the, you know, there are many different types of addictions and he, you know, most of us are addicted in some way to our phones. My own theory of addiction is it isn't actually about the substance, the behaviour or process, it's about dopamine. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, everyone's hardwired in a different way. So if something gives you a kick, and in medical terms, sometimes we use the term dopamine spike in the so-called nucleus mm-hmm. accumbens, I mean, you're very likely to become addicted to that. And there can be many spikes caused by Twitter messages or texts, WhatsApps, emails, things, and not necessarily because they're very rewarding, but because somehow the novelty effect of them mm-hmm. can make you addicted to them. Of course, that addiction is more of an ongoing one, not very severe, but if you if you take other types of addiction, like process or behavioral addictions, dopamine plays a major role in almost all of them. Yeah. And so the dopamine part of the brain is the one that regulates the reward, the reward that we feel, the expectation, the anticipation tends to actually lead linked to a higher dopamine spike that rather than the consummation of the act strangely mm. so the expectation of the drink for yeah. example already spikes your dopamine yeah some people i mean the kind of theory the evolutionary theory is that you know your dopamine was spiked when you hunted an animal when you were going to eat it or you know before you were going to have sex or you know the kind of rewards that we had at the time it's the anticipation of the reward that spikes your dopamine so you can pursue Mm-hmm. the reward because once the result the reward has been achieved mother nature doesn't have a need for you to engage in it anymore once you've eaten already once you've had the sex then you move on to something else but it's the anticipation of it that actually spikes your dopamine so for example a lot of people with certain addictions often even if they're not using the substance or doing their behavior just thinking about it anticipating it helps them go through the day knowing that when they finish work at 5 p.m. or whenever, they will then go and do this thing or they will then go shopping or perhaps that's not a terribly good example because shopping is such an ubiquitous behavior that defining it as an addiction would require a relatively high threshold. But again, addiction Mm -hmm. is a spectrum. So you can have many addictive behaviors and we don't want to pathologize normal behavior, but we all have a lot of behaviors that we realize we do excessively. Yeah. And changing that would probably be a good idea. And I have a couple of quotes that I found very, very interesting in that sense. One is from Goethe, you know, the, the German writer. And mm-hmm. he said, to think is easy, to act is hard, but the hardest thing in the world is to act in accordance with your thinking. So essentially, what he says is that there's different selves. We use the term critical self just to define that kind of higher power that you've got inside you, the kind of more logical self, the one who tends to be more dispassionate, more conservative, more understanding of your whole trajectory, where you are, where you want to go, consequences of your actions, you know, more compassionate with yourself and with others generally. Mm. And then you have that more kind of hedonic, laid back, impulsive, happy-go-lucky, blasé self, which you could define as Mr. Hyde, which actually comes out way too often, generally, when certain things around you happen. So, for example, if you have tendencies to different addictions, you'll probably be in that part of yourself more often than not. Mm. And then when you feel regret, it is generally the critical self that makes you feel that regret. 
and then the answer tends to be tomorrow. Mm. Tomorrow I will change my behavior. Tomorrow mm. I'll stop drinking. Yeah. I'll stop smoking. I'll quit sugar. Whatever it is that you want to do, because you realize it is damaging your life. It is causing problems. But tomorrow becomes a trap because tomorrow becomes always tomorrow, and tomorrow never happens. Mm. And we become convinced that we will do things tomorrow because we have to. And actually, as things escalate and, and the addiction gets worse, tomorrow becomes more imminent, and we think. I am really going to do it tomorrow because I have to. But today is the, the kind of the great goodbye. It's you know the, the last, the last use, whatever it is. So that tends to be the vicious circle of addiction. And I have another quote in this regard by someone called Jesse uh, Gregor, which says, "Hard choices, easy life; easy choices, hard life." Mm. So this is about trying to make the right choices. Once you make a choice. The most difficult part is to make the choice. Implementing it doesn't tend to be so difficult. Yeah. So choice like going to a rehab, I'm sure it was a difficult one. But once the choice was made, the actual implementation of it, and when you were there, there were moments of struggle. But I'm sure it wasn't that difficult. Mm. I don't know if you want to comment on that. Yeah, actually, it's funny and it's not funny. But I was at home drinking, and I realised that as I had done for quite a long time. In the latter stages of my drinking, you know, you didn't want to get cornered by, by me in a pub or a party because I would tell you whilst drinking how chronic my drinking problem was. <clears throat> so not great fun to be cornered by. When I was at home drinking during the day, I'd got myself in a sufficient state of drunkenness to have a moment of clarity, which sounds paradoxical, but the moment of clarity was this can't go on anymore. So I went online and I researched some rehabs, phoned one up, booked in for that Friday, sent a text to my partner and mum to tell them the news. My phone switched itself off and I passed out. I woke up later on, mum and partner were at the door, and of course the question was, where have you booked? And I couldn't remember because I've been drinking. So we had to go back through my Google history to find where I booked. So it's funny and it's not funny. I mean, it's kind of an uncomfortable thing. Actually, Making that decision, for me, it had come to a crossroads where there were two paths open to me and one of them I just wasn't going down. That was enough for me. So the other path was get some help. And actually, rehab, I enjoyed. Every day is the same. You have lots of structure and routine. You don't have your purse, your phone. What else? They take away all those kind of things from you. So you don't have to worry about bills, phone calls, text messages, anything like that. You don't even go out much for two weeks. But you don't go anywhere without somebody in case you fit. And after that, it's very routine. And I enjoyed it because I, I needed a break. You know, you can have my phone, you can have my wallet. I don't care about that. I don't need keys. I don't need to lock a door. And I was able just to relax and focus on the job at hand, which was getting better and giving up alcohol. So I found it quite a good experience. Quite humbling as well. You're in there with people that you probably walk past on the street and, you know, would just dismiss and then you see the other side of those people less fortunate less educated who've had incredibly traumatic upbringings you can understand why crack or heroin or alcohol or nicotine or the whole lot was to use dr gabor Marte's expression a soft warm hug you can see how they felt that way and it's interesting what gabor Marte says about you know pain and trauma being the causes of many addictions that's a very key part of his work do you agree? We've talked about the genetic component. Yes, most definitely. There are a lot of factors that can trigger or perpetuate or predispose someone to addiction. We've talked about the genetic factors, which are quite important. But actually, any mental condition or any type of mental suffering 
can lead to addiction, but particularly PTSD or a history of trauma can lead to that. We think that the rationale is that people with PTSD struggle with anxiety, distress, flashbacks. So living in their own brains becomes extremely difficult on an ongoing basis and it tends to last. Sometimes when it becomes chronic, it can be extremely difficult to endure. So substances that will numb their brains or just kind of somehow take the edge off and stop that cycle of thinking, flashbacks, mental torture, guilt, they will naturally you know, be the go-to. So a lot of people with PTSD, for example, have a tendency to become addicted to Valium or Xanax or substances that just calm their brains and make them feel more relaxed. Alcohol, for example. Mm. Alcohol actually is very similar to Valium and Xanax. It acts on the GABA receptors of the brain. So chemically, you could define Valium as almost chemical alcohol, but without some of the effects. Another condition is ADHD. It's a condition where people often struggle with mind-wandering, racing thoughts, impulsivity and also dysregulation in their dopamine kind of systems. So it is very common that they will have much more of a risk to become addicted to different substances. Whether it's alcohol kind of to stop the mind wandering or the, the mental noise or things like cocaine just to feel that dopamine spike, just to feel alive, just to feel kind of that sort of kick mm. which often they may not have naturally unless they are very engaged with something in life. Mm. So ADHD is another mental condition that's very often linked with addiction. Perhaps in terms of other other triggers, I think it's a... I mean, for someone to get addicted to something, it takes a perfect storm of a genetic predisposition to tolerate the substance, mm -hmm. to experience rewarding effects, to having been exposed to perhaps long enough, and to have an environment, whether it is you know cultural or situational, which actually gives them availability to the substance or for it to be culturally accepted mm. or for them to be suffering enough that this substance acts as a way of self-treatment. If, if some of these conditions are met, then the person can become addicted. And as mm. you know, it's probably not that difficult with the rates of substances we have. Mm. It's probably not very difficult nowadays for most people to have some element of, of addiction to some substances or behaviors. We see addiction mm. as a spectrum as well. Again, we're not pathologizing you know, human compulsivity because it's part of who we are. We are hardwired to be addicted to the things that make us happy. But when that happens to the detriment of a happy and reasonably orderly life, then we talk about addiction, medically speaking. Mm. Obsessive compulsive disorder, how is that linked with addiction? Because addiction is a compulsive, obsessive behavior. It's true. Yes, there are some links, but they seem to be more along the lines of, it's because, of course, you know, the word compulsive is used to define addiction and also to define obsessive-compulsive disorder. But interestingly, the links are kind of perhaps a bit more semantic than physiologic. So in OCD, people feel compelled by their brains to take certain actions to prevent something bad from happening. For example, hand washing to prevent getting an infection mm -hmm. or checking the locks, the doors, just to prevent someone from breaking in and things similar to that. That can lead to addiction just because the amount of distress and anxiety that people with OCD can endure mm. is so intense that substances generally downers like Valium or, or, or opiates or other substances that will calm their brains. But that would be similar to PTSD or similar to anxiety, social phobia. So social phobia is another anxiety condition that is extremely linked to alcohol use. And actually whenever we diagnose someone with social phobia, we have to 
rule out, it's imperative to rule out alcohol problems and vice versa. Mm. If, if you diagnose someone with alcohol problems, you always want to make sure there isn't an anxiety disorder, such as PTSD or social phobia, that's actually been the main reason or one of the main kind of perpetuating or predisposing factors. Mm. So if it comes back to dopamine then, what is the process? Well, what is dopamine? How is it generated? And you did, yeah, there's a quote I wrote down before we started recording that addiction is a disease of the reward system of the brain, which I believe dopamine is a key part of. Exactly. So just explain what that process is, how it's generated, because there are positive ways of getting dopamine. Absolutely. And so definitely, I mean, dopamine is necessary for life. Without dopamine, probably mankind wouldn't exist, because if you didn't, for example, experience dopamine spike when you engage in sex or intercourse, if it was a behavior that, that left us completely without any sort of like reward feeling, we would probably not do it. The behaviors that don't cause reward, we tend not to do them. Everything causes an element of reward. Dopamine is linked with oxytocin, with noradrenaline, which are other neurotransmitters in the brain. So for example, social contact can increase oxytocin and that in itself is rewarding. But it's that bonding and connection, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So reward can happen in many ways. For example, reward linked to noradrenaline can happen when you engage in an activity that is either risky or requires your full attention and we call that a state of flow or hypofrontality. For example, if you're solo climbing and you know when you fall you could die, the attention you're going to have in your movements of behavior will be 100%. In that state you almost stop existing as a human being in your prefrontal cortex which is kind of where your ego lies and you exist more as a as an entity that is completely focused on the movement or task at hand. Strangely, that detachment from yourself is a massive respite. Mm. And actually, we relish it very much. And that's why people absolutely love and actually get better doing things like surfing or certain sports or activities that actually involve, or playing the piano. I mean, any activity that involves a lot of coordination where there is some element of risk and adrenaline can cause that type of reward. Going back to dopamine, anything from eating to going to the toilet and opening your bowels causes some element of kind of dopamine spike because you feel some element of reward. So it is completely normal to have dopamine. Perhaps in the kind of more prehistoric era before we had the drugs we have at the moment, it was more difficult for our ancestors to engage in the kind of addictive behaviors that we have at the moment, but it was probably still an issue for them but not such an issue that they would die because of it. They would eat fruit in the summer when it was in season and they would probably binge on it and be bloated and stop eating then. But that didn't happen all year long, so they didn't get diabetes because of it or things like that, or they, did, they didn't have drugs. They had some plants that they could abuse, but generally they weren't synthetic in the form that, that we have now, which can lead to massive dopamine spikes. So nature doesn't have any plants or anything that if you consume it raw, it will spike your dopamine to such an extent. Cocaine is the substance that seems to have, and particularly crack cocaine, a bigger spike in dopamine when you consume it. And there are receptors on the brain that let in The dopamine, dopamine. receptors, yeah. They can be blunted, can't they, with repeated use. If you continually knock at the door, yes. they'll stop answering in effect. So what is the effect of that? Yeah, this is called tolerance, and it is similar to what happens with GABA and alcohol. So when you use, let's say, cocaine often enough, the body needs more dose, the brain needs more dose to feel the same reward. Mm. And this is a mechanism of adaptation that happens with, with everything. 
you could think that it's to an extent a hormetic stressor, similar to how exercise makes your muscles adapt and makes them stronger, mm-hmm. or any other hormetic stressor. The same happens with dopamine to an extent. It happens less than with other substances, but when something spikes dopamine so intensely as cocaine, people find that after a while they need to use higher doses just to feel any yeah. reward. And even at some point, they stop feeling any reward whatsoever, and it's just that if they don't have the cocaine, they just feel miserable. Mm-hmm. Because their brains have the reward or kind of hedonic threshold or reward threshold has been set up so high that that's what you meant with the blunted kind of response. Yeah. So eventually they become dependent on the substance just to experience any degree of reward. So it actually backfires big time as a substance. Like stimulants like dopamine tend to actually kind of be a massive trap for people when they use them often. Mm. What are the positive ways that we can generate dopamine? Because so, there's dopamine in food, isn't there? There's dopamine in food, but it's such a tricky one because generally what... Which is not always a good thing. Yes, I mean, the food that will spike your dopamine more is the kind of combination of sugars and saturated fats, fries and things like that, which actually seems to be what, for most people, spikes their dopamine and gives them a more intense reward and subsequent addiction. I would say that it's a tricky question, but my own experience and perhaps thought is that if you eat when you're quite hungry, almost any food, any reasonable healthy food will taste quite good. So, and actually we know that reasonably well now that having two or three meals a day seems to be preferable to having lots of snacks a day. Mm-hmm. So periods of intermittent fasting in between meals, to the point where you are generally hungry when you eat. If you're hungry, you will probably be able to eat more healthy stuff. If you're not hungry, you'll just need something very tasty for you to eat it because that's what tends to happen. People tend to snack if they're not very hungry, just if the snack is kind of delicious. Otherwise, mm. they couldn't be bothered. Very few people snack on carrots and stuff, yeah. unless you're hungry and they're available. So with food, it's about being aware of the fact that a dopamine spike is probably a double-edged sword. If there's something that you like a lot and you realize that you overdo it, then you want to find a way to use it in a better way and for some people that means not doing it at all mm-hmm. but that's a very personal decision whether like an, as in with alcohol some people decide not to drink because they realize there's no such a thing as moderation mm-hmm. it's all or nothing but with food I think you could argue that sometimes some people have found that you know avoiding sugar altogether seems to work better for them or avoiding certain foods altogether but getting natural dopamine spikes the best way to do that is to use a contrast between hardship or work or suffering or abstinence and abundance or use. And I'll give you some examples. So for example, with with sex, you know, having sex every day or every couple of days is probably what we are intended to in terms of our kind of physiology. So when that happens, you are kind of more predisposed to enjoying the experience with Mm -hmm. minimal tolerance to it. If you have sexual compulsivity and either masturbate or have sex several times a day, invariably, after only a few days or weeks, you stop enjoying the activity and you kind of reset your your threshold. The same goes with food. And if you eat chocolate every day, you probably don't enjoy it as much. The same happens with a lot of other behaviors. Uh-huh. So the idea is to have a break in between dopamine spikes so that you reset that. The next time you do the behavior, you enjoy it. We're talking about behaviors which are, I understand, kind of not causing any negative consequences. Yeah. So that raises an interesting point, actually. So if I was to go back to drinking alcohol, I reckon I'd be a week, two weeks off going back to drinking, you know, exactly the same. 
advanced as I was before in just probably a couple of weeks. In the six years I've been sober, why am I not going to reset in? Why is it I'd be picking up where I left off? And what am I picking up on? Is it the dopamine connections? Have I changed my neural circuitry, the connections in my brain, irrevocably? What's going on now? I know there's quite a few things there. It's a, it's a complex one. I mean, the first thing is that alcohol acts more on the GABA system of the brain. Yeah. So what alcohol does is GABA is like, you know, switching the lights off the brain. The more you right. enhance GABA, GABA is, you know, that's why if you drink a lot of alcohol, it puts you to sleep. So, so it subdues the GABA. It's a GABA enhancer. And what GABA right. does, it, it lets chloride ions go into the neurons and they have a negative charge, so it switches the lights off. Okay. It inhibits neural Hence why it's sedating. Exactly. And actually, if you start drinking, the first thing that happens is that alcohol starts acting on your prefrontal cortex. So anything related to disinhibition, social anxiety, your own internal draconian critical voice, all of that goes away. And that's why people feel kind of merry. Yeah. All of a sudden, they feel that sort of relief. They feel socially more disinhibited. If you carry on drinking, then it goes kind of back in the brain and it starts affecting the cerebellum and your coordination becomes a little bit tricky and that's why people ask you to walk on a straight line and then you can't, that means you're drunk. If you carry on drinking then you kind of fall asleep because it goes down to your brain stem which regulates your kind of alertness. If you did carry on drinking because let's say you drink enough quickly before you pass out, you could even stop breathing, that's much more likely, but it can happen, you know, to, to have a, mm. an etylic coma. Uh, it's because it goes further down into your respiratory center. Opioids do that much more easily, and that's why I think it's an interesting thing to comment here. I think, that's um, sorry to interrupt you, wasn't that one of the theories on Whitney Houston's death? That the temperature of the bath, which was hot, uh-huh. combined with the amount of, she possibly had sedatives in her bloodstream, but certainly alcohol, yes. just put her heart to sleep. It's one of the theories. I don't know whether it's the actual cause of Very likely and particularly... So on that, but... Very, very likely and particularly we know that if you combine alcohol with sedatives or if you combine different substances, the effects can be much more than the addition of them. Yeah. So two plus two can be seven or ten instead of four. Yeah. It wasn't the case in, in Whitney's case, but, you know, the possibility that you can choke on your own vomit if you combine alcohol mm. with sedatives is very high, which is why it's a very high-risky behavior. But... What we were saying is that GABA is what alcohol taps on. So mm-hmm. the initial happiness, it's because it stops you from feeling the kind of worries that you tend to feel, much more so than just giving you an initial dopamine spike. There are connections with GABA and, and kind of the other neurotransmitters and dopamine. So it is rewarding. But in this case, more than making you feel kind of high, just makes you feel kind of very relaxed and, and merry, which turns you into the most laid-back side of you. Mm. Of course, people often very much like that, Mm. but it's not exactly the same as a dopamine spike caused by cocaine or certain stimulants or the dissociation that ketamine causes. So every substance taps into an area of the brain, into a neural circuit of the brain with different neurotransmitters and causes a different state. So, for example, ayahuasca and psilocybin and LSD seem to tap onto certain areas of the brain which actually cause the re- in the right doses in the right context they can trigger kind of epiphany type of situations where people are able to perhaps do reflections on their lives which can be conducive to much improvement mm-hmm. and kind of realization and insight 
Of course, it can also lead to a bad trip or to psychosis. Yeah. Of the, of the <clears throat> dose and many factors are not necessarily endorsing, but there's interesting research going on about that. But depending on which drug you take, you'll have a different effect. So it's extremely complex. And also when we add behavior to it, it becomes even more complex. Okay. So in part, I've had an impact on the GABA receptors in my brain. Is it possible that their connections have been formed that, if you like, if activated, I'm just going to go down path A? It's a foregone conclusion I'm going down path A. There's no chance of going down path B, which could be recreational drinking, or path C, which is take it or leave it. I am always going to go path A, but why is that? Okay. So in that case, it is because there probably is a genetic component. There is. Okay, yeah. but that doesn't mean no, that no, you need sorry, to have checking, a family I'm member. With you, you're saying there probably is a genetic component. There probably is. Yeah. Is, is, there, is. I mean, um, you could or could not be aware of it because it could be that one of your family members just never went till to no, alcohol. No, there is someone. They could have been predisposed. My mother's or my grandfather's generation who was alcoholic. My mum is, is by no means alcoholic, but she needs to consciously ration what she drinks and consciously okay. watch what she drinks. I believe that to be more psychological, that she perceives that she needs it to feel more relaxed or to deal with certain situations or manage stress perhaps rather than physical. Makes sense. So my brother is sort of also um, had problems with, with alcohol and, and drugs and hasn't touched them for about the same length of time that I have. So, but he's my generation. So in Is your that? case and in a lot of cases where you know that using the substance is going to very quickly lead to full-blown addiction, by genetic I don't necessarily mean familial because it could be that there's no family members yeah. with the addiction but you still have that predisposition. There's a range of reasons. It could be that you inherited some tendency from your father, some from your mother. Neither of them are alcoholics but then the combination of both is yeah. kind of what gives you the tendency. So a genetic tendency coupled with the fact that you have had that addiction in the past. Mm. So the moment your brain feels alcohol, it will want to go all the way, probably not from the very beginning, but if you did drink alcohol today, your tolerance would be reset to kind of zero at the moment, but because your cover receptors are back to normal. But it could take a relatively short period of time for that physical dependence to happen. Mm. But it would be more the psychological effects of alcohol. That It is like the forbidden fruit. Like once you have eating it for long enough, no matter how long you're abstinent from it, if you try it again, you can go back to square one, mm. square one very quickly. It doesn't happen to everyone, and some people are actually able to become moderate drinkers after having been alcoholics. It is not the majority, it mm. depends how and you it's time a high alcoholic. Risk strategy, I say. And it's a high and risk strategy. And you have to strategy. ask why as well. Exactly. But, but in some cases it is possible, it is possible as well that when they were alcoholics there were certain situations in their life that were making them more predisposed to being alcoholics. But who tells them that whilst they're moderate drinkers, the same situations won't happen again and that could lead to mm. another relapse. So it's complex. Mm. But yeah, in your case, I would say that, and in most people's cases, we don't know exactly the mechanism, but when the brain experiences that state again, it compulsively needs more and more and more of it yeah. until it's too much. My own theory is that you know, picking up on the disease of the reward system of the brain, that the brain is programmed to associate alcohol probably with the euphoric recall aspect, with you know, letting go and just not caring and social inhibition, the shutdown of the prefrontal cortex. And as I intellectually, I can think shaking in the morning, lying, hiding. That's not something I'd ever want to go back to. But the brain probably 
if that's the path I was following, but thinking about picking up a drink again, would connect with the fun times and the compulsion anyway. I, I don't feel that switched off. I think my sobriety is, is very solid. I have no hesitation that that's the, it's what I'm going to maintain. It's not fragile to me, you know. Though, I mean, you keep walking around London anywhere, surrounded by alcohol. Most people drink, to some degree or another. You've even got people who are largely teetotal, like David Beckham endorsing whiskies advertised in bus stops and on the sides of buses and on social media. You don't get away from alcohol, it's everywhere. So you've got to have a very strong sense of your sobriety. So that's there. But I know that if I was to go back to it, I would be picking up where I left off. And that's the other thing, is the dose. You know, I've known people, a couple of people anecdotally, who've gone back just for one last fun night or whatever it is, and it's been their last night. Because they've had a period of abstinence and they haven't factored that in at all. I nearly did it to myself as well. And you've gone back to the same amount that you would have consumed before. Yes. And your body's not used to it. Absolutely. So it's, yeah, you know, you put yourself in a very dangerous position yes. where you've not built up that, year, that years of tolerance you had before. You've gone right back in at one and a half bottles of wine. Absolutely. And the body's like, what the hell? <laughs> very dangerous situation. And I have a question for you. Do you find that when you were drinking, you were like a different a different self, a different you, yes. that was consistently not exactly the same person, but overall, crossly kind of the same person who was much more laid back as in, you know, we don't need to worry that much, everything's going to be okay, this is just a period of time, it's not as bad as it seems. I'd say I was more or less the same, but an exaggerated, exa- well, more the same and, and not, far more likely to lose my tempo, or be aggressive or impatient due to tiredness and also the anti-inhibitory effects of alcohol. But other aspects of my personality, so outgoing, showman, centre of attention, the entertainer, were just amplified. Yes. So while I wasn't much different, I mean, that question really should go to those closest to me for a really accurate answer. But that's what I would think. But I mean, the perception of yourself, do you find that you are the same person that was drinking or do you find that somehow when you were drinking, you were in a different place of mind that, you know, this business of the continuity of the self, you know, whether we are different people, it's a bit of a metaphor, of course, mm. uh, whether we are different people when we consume a substance or in different times of the day, in the morning, we tend to be much more, we have more willpower, we tend to be our best selves. Often in the evening, after a hard day, we tend to be much more prone to doing things we shouldn't do. Mm. Do you find that you're not the same person all the time and that when you were drinking, that was much more accentuated or exaggerated. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think our willpower is probably higher in the morning. Going back to my drinking days where I was working in the city in a job that I found deeply unfulfilling. Yeah. I was spending my days looking at the clock in the right-hand corner of my PC, wishing day away, week away, month away, to the next payday, where invariably I was spending everything I was earning, which was not insubstantial. In the mornings I would go out, put maybe the semi-finished bottle of wine in the wheelie bin, thinking I won't need that today because today I'm not going to drink. Yeah. Full of willpower, and then finding that yes, it was eroding. You know, I'd barely end up drinking at lunch, eroding as the day went on. I think there's also something in that, that what I was doing very much lacked meaning and purpose and yes. felt very inauthentic. So I dressed differently, I dressed in what I perceived to be the uniform of the city so skirts, tights, heels, not me at all. I've not put a skirt on for six and a bit years and probably won't. Uh, that's not how I identify. So there was that mixing with people who were very sort of. You know, a lot of bravado, or if the deal's not worth 50 grand, I'm not getting out of bed. That kind of bullshit, which which really wasn't me. I mean, a, a culture that very much glorified alcohol consumption. It's part of the job. It's a small part, but it's part. 
you know, there was one chap who said he woke up to find the Mercedes on the drive and he'd been out, you know, he'd obviously driven it home. So that kind of culture, and there's no meaning in my work at all. And I think that, that fueled, I've looked back and tried to work out what it was I drank. And I think ultimately at the beginning, it was, it was for pain. It was for the difficulties of growing up, which I think then led to me associating sorting your problems with alcohol or amplifying aspects of your personality you want to be dominant with alcohol and suppressing the ones you don't with it and that became a learned behavior and then at some point I think I got physically dependent and then I think there was lots of boredom and unfulfillment and lack of authenticity and not doing what it was I really wanted to do and expressing myself in the way I dressed and what I was doing and everything else in the way I wanted to which ultimately led to increased alcohol consumption. And that's how I think it's gone for me. But it's a confusing one to work out why why I, I did that. But equally, I, I don't spend very long thinking about it. <laughs> no, fair enough. But it was so interesting that you said in the morning you would wake up and you would just literally, you know, kind of try and get rid of the alcohol yeah. you had because, you know, today was going to be a different day. Yeah. But when you wake up, you tend to be your best self. You are well-slept. You know, you have your willpower. And we know that scientifically that your willpower is, is at the top after you sleep. Mm. And then throughout the day, as you start being eroded by the miseries of life, mm. the anxiety, the distress, the negative thoughts, whatever it is, we find that the majority of my patients, like if they want to stop smoking, they often throw the package and then they end up buying another one yeah. after a few hours yeah. or next day. The same happens with cannabis, with lots of, often with alcohol and cannabis because they're very kind of relatively cheap or easy to buy and people just throw them in the bin and then they either go back and look for them or call the dealer or go to the off-license again. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we are different people, again, this is just a metaphor, is kind of something that I have been studying more recently and it's called the lock-in type of theory. Mm -hmm. So the theory goes that when, and it actually relates to the issue that I said earlier about hard choices, easy life, easy choices, hard life. So when you are your critical self, which can happen anything from 1% of the day to 99% of the day on a good day, on a day when you have been your critical self 90 something percent of the day, you feel amazing because you've achieved a lot, you have very few regrets, you've acted in a healthy way, productive, happy way, and in a day when you've been, you know, the Incredible Hulk, let's put it that way, or mm. Mr. Hyde, for most of the day, uh, you feel quite guilty. And there's a glimpse of insight from this high critical self when you go to bed that goes like, oh my gosh, I can't, I, tomorrow shouldn't be like today, otherwise I'm going to end up just like literally dead at some point or God knows what. The idea is when you are feeling your critical self quite strongly, when you realize you are being your critical self, to try to lock that in, try to not revert back to that other self. The moment you start the behavior of the substance, very quickly you're going to change your brain chemistry and go back to that other self, which is the one you want to avoid. So the idea is to create immediate consequences through behavioral change in the environment, not giving yourself access to alcohol, asking friends, family, spouses to monitor you. It sounds strange and it has to be very creative, but it is often the only thing that will work. Of course, you could go to a rehab and that's, that's perfect. But very often for a lot of behaviors and substances, you don't have the luxury of just going to a rehab. So mm. you have to create, if you create consequences, you're much more likely to succeed. And a good example of that is Antabuse. I don't know if you're familiar yes. with it, but yeah. it's this, oh, yeah. this medication that you can choose to take. It's one tablet, you take it in the morning and 
when you've taken that tablet, it makes you intolerant to alcohol, almost allergic to it. So if you drink even a, a small amount of alcohol, you'll start feeling sick. If you carry on drinking, you'll get blushing. You'll start throwing up, and you'd have to go to a and if you carry on drinking. I mean, if you drink a lot, you could even die, but it's, you'd have to drink quite a lot. So it's what we call an alcohol deterrent. We don't use it very often, but in cases where people have relapsed a lot, and they really find it almost impossible to find the willpower mm. to stop after a detox. They decide to go on antabuse. They take it every day and relapse is not an option. They know they can't drink and if they start drinking, they have to stop immediately. The medication will last in the system about five days, which is good because if you plot a relapse, you have to stop taking it for five days. So it needs to be quite mm. premeditated for you to relapse. It only takes a second of insight within these five days for you to pop in the tablet to have another five days of allowance before you yeah. relapse again. So and relapses do tend to be impulsive, don't they? Very often. So that kind of avoids the majority of relapses. You have mm. to really plot it. Another thing is a lot of my patients ask one, a family member to monitor how they take the interviews in the morning and that way there's no getting away from not taking it. Mm. A similar thing is you know, forbidding your own entrance to the casino. If you're a gambler and you know it's destroying your life, you just sign a form and you can no longer going to the casino, which actually does the trick. But of course, now we have online casinos, yeah. so that's a completely different thing. For gambling, we, I mean, for some schools that treat gambling suggest that, you know, you shouldn't have any access to money because if you do, chances are you'll spend it. So the spouse or someone will look after your finances and you'll have to ask for money if you need it. It seems very strange and it seems like a very radical thing to do, but often that's what it takes for people to stop. Mm. If there is no way you can engage in the behavior, then that gives you the space to actually recover. And then there'll come a time when you will not need the interviews and then you'll be okay. But you need that space of generally a few months without the substance to kind of become your critical self again. So this theory of locking, I find that it has a lot of merit. And I think every one of us knows that we can be different selves. There could mm. be just small differences. And if we try to inhabit more on the critical, the, not, not just critical, I mean, I use the word critical, but I mean, this self that actually knows what we need to do in life and that's able to enjoy life in a more natural way. Enjoying the dopamine spikes, as we said, by creating rewards intermittently, but also engaging in work or in other situations that actually create a level of kind of more hardship. And then it's the contrast between work and leisure, hunger and eating, you know, abstinence and sex. And that cycle is that we seem to be designed for it. If you follow it, that the example of everything in moderation, that seems to be the most physiological way to enjoy life in terms of a contrast between responsibility and indulgence, so to say. Yeah. It's the contrast that gives us happiness, giving and taking. Yes. And there's the other side of this as well, where people are doing behaviours that are very positive. There's a term for it, orthorexia, where you're exercising to upset, you know, excessively to the point Absolutely. of obsession. Eating clean as an obsession, yes. obsessing about the intricacies of your food. And that's the other side of it, I suppose, where ostensibly it's a positive behaviour, but the dose is the poison. You know, you're yes. overdoing that. Is that still a dopamine thing? Gosh, that is such an interesting question. And actually, orthorexia is much more involved recently because of this kind of trend to healthy eating. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a relationship with dopamine so far as eating the things that are supposed to be unhealthy, like sugars or fries or you know fried food or kind of processed food which is often very tasty or junk food that will cause a dopamine spike or like you know chocolate and things like that 
So if you're orthorexic and you think that these foods are not healthy, you'll try not to eat them a lot or at all. But then when you eat them, you have the dopamine spike. So it's kind of a tricky give and take. Mm. And I think that, you know, going like trying to draconian and to radical and saying, you know, I will not eat any unhealthy food, that tends to lead to unhappiness mm. and radicalism. And very few people are able to, to do that. A lot of people I know, and actually many of my patients, the majority of people in, in our current society do struggle with those of us who are health conscious. It is often difficult to draw the line with you what is doing something in moderation and enjoy it, like cake and things like that, and doing something compulsively. But because we are so surrounded by stimuli that kind of can increase our dopamine and gives us that massive spike and reward, if you are prone to that, you will tend to do that more often than not. And actually, that's my case, for example. So I think we were talking earlier that I am actually wearing a continuous glucose monitoring system. Mm. I don't have diabetes, but I do that as a self-experiment because some of my patients do it and I, I find it interesting. So, so that, for clarity, for anyone listening, what, what the hell is that? So a device, we actually started this before we hit record, yes. demonstrating all the different bits of tech we've got on our person. You trumped me because we've both got an Oura <laughs> ring. Listeners of the show will know what the Oura ring is, but it's a, it's a ring that tracks sleep activity and ultimately our readiness or our recovery. We've both got a form of Apple Watch on yes. our wrists, which for me is tracking fitness, it's linked to my Sleep vitality. Sleep as well, heart rate, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I use it for fitness because it, it correlates against my vitality. I get vitality points, so I'm basically paid to wear this. And ultimately, I'm hoping it will drive my premium down. But you trump me because you've got this little... Yes, it's uh, the brand is Dexcom. It? So it's basically a small sensor that you, yeah. you can put in your belly and it's absolutely painless. So some people think it's going to be... I mean, it doesn't require an implantation or anything, you know, it's just very easy You do it Stick yourself. It. it takes it takes literally 30 seconds. Yeah. And you can wear it for 10 days and then you have to replace a sensor. Mm-hmm. And it connects to your smartphone via an application. It's very easy to set up. So at any given time, you can see your glucose levels in blood. So that's interesting for a range of reasons. Of course, if you have diabetes, it's extremely interesting. But if you don't have, it's very interesting to see what your glucose tolerance is. Mm. If you have, and also how the food you eat will affect your sugar levels. Mm. You could think that something is, for example, low GI, and then realize that your sugar levels spike quite significantly after eating it. So maybe it wasn't so low GI. Again, it's not about being too obsessive about that, but it's just kind of about being conscious of what you eat and how that affects you. And also, realizing that sometimes you may feel grumpy or nauseous and maybe your sugar levels are very low and that was the explanation for that Mm. or you may feel unfocused and that could be related to a spike in your sugar levels and actually could be affecting behavior you could feel restless there's a range of behaviors that sometimes may correlate perhaps not but i also use it as a deterrent because watching my sugar levels spike dramatically after after a chocolate binge for example is quite a significant deterrent because of course mm-hmm. I'm aware as a doctor that it is the ongoing high sugar levels and particularly the spikes that will eventually increase someone's risk for increased HBA, like hemoglobin, glycated hemoglobin, and therefore the risk of diabetes, type 2 diabetes. So mm-hmm. it is something that I have some family history of and of course I'm very keen to try and prevent that if I can. Cool. So let's look at some practical advice for people then. We've talked about all the different types of addictions. Actually, just briefly on anxiety, where does that position against compulsive behaviours and addiction? And then we'll just finish by giving people some practical advice on how to manage compulsive behaviours, maybe some strategies for sort of trying to control behaviours before they become dependent upon them. 
But firstly, yeah, the relationship with anxiety, because I think that drives a lot of people's behaviours, negative behaviours. Yeah, it's, it's a two-way relationship. So often, if a certain behaviour reduces anxiety, like drinking alcohol, it, the behaviour becomes, of course, you know, a habit or an addiction, particularly if you have high anxiety, like an anxiety disorder, or if, if you live a stressful life. The typical example is, you know, a very demanding job, type A personality, workaholic, work hard, and then play hard. You need to take something to take the edge off, whether mm -hmm. it's alcohol or something else. So that's one way of the relationship. The other way is that some addictions actually can increase anxiety. Slightly more complicated type mm -hmm. of relationship, and it depends on the type of addiction, the kind of consequences that it generates. But I think you're referring more to the how addiction can initially reduce anxiety, but over the long term, it just makes it worse. Yeah. yeah. Well, two things. I think anxiety feeds into addictive behaviors or certainly problem behaviors. You know, we are continually trying to change how we feel, aren't we? Yeah. Using exercise, food, sunlight. I mean, these are positive ways on the whole of doing it. But we're also continually, I was constantly trying to change how I felt by drinking. Mm -hmm. And the irony is you find this, you find this sweet spot which perhaps lasts for a drink before you then get into the negative effects. So, you know, you're always chasing the dragon as it were. Yes. But also, on the face of it, it does help with anxiety, but only on a very short-term basis, doesn't it? Which I think is what we're going to talk about now. In the long term, it compounds it. Oh, definitely. I mean, any behavior that is addictive, many of them tackle anxiety, but it's a short-lived thing and actually they create a bigger problem, like mm -hmm. an addiction to benzos like Xanax. You get a few hours of relief of the anxiety, but then when you have the calm down, you need more Sanax. And then if you don't have the Sanax, then your anxiety spikes. So it's a double sword and it definitely is not a good idea. If you talk about other behaviors like exercise as, as an anxiety reduction, that's mm. very good. You can be addicted to it, but it's much more difficult. Mm. And so behaviors like exercise or something that helps reduce anxiety more naturally, they don't tend to cause that incredible spike and then a calm down. Very rarely people will say, oh, I had an endorphin kick after a 5K run or something, and then it had a calm down. But whereas, you know, people do cocaine or Xanax and things like that, the calm down can be quite dreadful. Mm. So with natural kind of dopamine enhancers or endorphin enhancers, it's very difficult to have a calm down. So that's a much more natural way to tackle anxiety if you have it. Yeah. But anxiety is this kind of complex thing that can come from so many places and more often than not, it comes from your own brain and attitude. And the way you view the world. Towards life, and yeah. it's a very complex thing. Yeah. Well, that's possibly for a part two. But one, yeah, one day we should talk about anxiety yeah. almost on its own. Yeah, yeah, well, we'll come, we'll come back to it, we'll do that, that would be great. Okay, so let's finish on some practical advice for people. Let's say somebody, I mean, we've really positioned this largely around alcohol. I think that's one of the biggest pervading problems, and certainly it's, it's the one that I relate to most. If somebody is concerned about the amount they're drinking, what, what are some of the strategies that they can employ? Okay. I think, again, you know, the first advice is, of course, talk to someone, ideally your GP or someone who will know how to advise professionally. Yeah. But kind of at a personal level, there are, like you said, some questionnaires online which are readily available. It's a good idea to measure the amount of units you're using or to do one of these questionnaires to see if you think you may have an issue of dependency physical yeah. dependency to alcohol. And I'll link to which, one of those questionnaires yeah. in the show notes. Which again, the great, I mean, I would say that probably 90% of people who have a problematic alcohol use or a problem alcohol use, they're not alcohol dependent. It's only a minority. A lot of people use alcohol in a binge pattern 
and they'll do alcohol, I don't know, most evenings or Thursday to Sunday or something like that in very large amounts to the point of having blackouts or other things. So the consequences are slightly different, but it's still a problematic alcohol use mm. without being alcohol dependent. Yeah. So if someone has that problem, the best thing generally is to talk to someone who is either a professional or a family member or a good friend, because normally the other person will have, first of all, the insight to find out what's happening. Second, element of external accountability to help them do the right thing and monitor that they're actually doing it because that's crucial. And mm. when it comes to addictions or anything, the external accountability factor is crucial. Mm. So actually being able to have someone who will monitor that you do what you said you were going to do, or that you're not using the substance and things like that. So the initial best advice is talk to someone, because from there on, that person will help you devise a plan, whether it's to see a specialist, or whether it is to have to reduce the use, to monitor if you want to stop altogether, Let's say if you're doing cocaine, the easiest thing is to tell your spouse, I want you to do a urine test on me because cocaine lasts in the urine for a few days. You can buy tests in Amazon quite cheap and you just wee on the pot. Actually, the person has to almost watch your wee because otherwise mm. people put lemon fanta and things like that. That makes you accountable and there needs to be a consequence. Like if, if yeah. the test is positive, you have to create an external consequence. It depends if it's a child or... A if your parents are the external accountability, there could be an incentive or a disincentive if you're using the substance, which I know a lot of people do. And as strange as it sounds, it can often work. But it's about creating the accountability and the consequence. You have to be extremely creative for that. There mm. isn't a one-size-fits-all rule. There needs to be a consequence for you. If it's not an immediate consequence, you will carry on doing the substance. So mm. some people make commitments or they just put it on Facebook that they want to stop smoking and then if someone sees them smoking one of their friends it's very embarrassing to have said I'm going to stop smoking and then everyone sees you smoking so mm. you're making yourself accountable but it's, it's being creative about that if you just wish to stop and you think you're going to stop because you have to chances are unless you have massive willpower it, it won't happen it's very rare so you have to mm. seek help and if the method you're using doesn't work you need to think of another method, ideally something that has clear consequences. Yeah. That tends to be quite difficult. There are even anti-charities that people release money to, like there's some websites where, let's say, you're my friend and I want to stop smoking, and you know, I tell you, okay, if you see me smoking, let's say we meet daily, if you see me smoking, or you know, you can do a cotidian test in urine to see if someone smokes, I'm gonna put, let's say, a thousand pounds on a website, and then you have a password, you can release that money to an anti-charity that I hate. There are yeah. sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those matters, yeah. And if you see me smoking again, that money will be released. I will not only lose the money, it will go to something that I despise. Yeah. To a cause that I absolutely hate. I'm not going to give examples because it would be politically incorrect here. But th that is a very strange but very effective way, actually, because mm. it's an amount of money I would hate losing <laughs> and for a cause that I actually hate. Yeah. It's about finding... Well, it's also about getting overcoming the inertia, isn't it? And just getting underway. Get your first Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday afternoon. Your first sunny afternoon mm. where you haven't got suns out, beers, which is this funny yes. little correlation we've got. And you get a week under your belt, then a couple of months, and then six months, and you build. It's like layering in the concrete of the foundations exactly. of your sobriety. And I think whatever it takes to get just a few weeks under your belt, which is a massive start. Yeah. What's worked really well for someone I know is an app in which he records all the drinks he's had. 
And you can personalise it as well. So if you like a particular type of drink, like yeah. Smirnoff and tonic, then you put Smirnoff and tonic in. And it records the number of units on a weekly rolling basis. So at any point in time, you can be like, bloody hell, that's, that's a lot more than I was expecting. Makes you um, aware. Yeah. Makes you aware. I think ultimately, getting on top of any sort of problem, behaviour, or whatever, wherever it is on the addiction spectrum, it's simply about having enough. You've had enough of the current situation. And if you haven't, if there's any degree of ambivalence, you're not quite there, but it's a start. Yeah. That's ultimately it. You've got to want a different way of life more than you want what you've got. That's you know what I talked about with the crossroads where yes. there was a path I just wasn't willing to go down and the other path was sorted out. That I think is ultimately it. But people will come to that in their own way. Sometimes something catastrophic happens before they come to that realisation. Yes. And sometimes they never do. But yeah, I mean, I think you've given us so much of your wisdom and your knowledge there, but I really appreciate it. What are your, what's your website? What are your contact details? So my website is psychiatristlondon.co.uk. It's all one word. But if someone Googles Alberto Psychiatrist London, that'll probably be... You can be found. Much easier than... Yeah. Are you on any about. sort of social media? I have a Twitter account where I tweet occasional quotes and things, but I'm not very heavy on social. Right. On social. I'm on LinkedIn and things like that, but I, I'm not too heavy. I probably don't have too much time yeah. for social no, media. It gobbles it up. So we'll link to your website, your Twitter and your LinkedIn as well. I'll also link to a questionnaire on signs of alcohol dependency, which, which we've got. And anything else that we've mentioned in the show, we'll link to as well. But Alberto, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Absolutely. Pleasure. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, www.bodyshotsperformance.com and click on Take the Test. It'll take you through to a short two to three minute test. And at the end of that, you'll get a scorecard and a free 39 page report based on our six signals, sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please think of someone who could really benefit from the content and hit that share button and send it across to them. And of course, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you very much for listening.